0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. As I said at the beginning of our worship service, according to the Western tradition of Christianity, today is the very first day of the Christian year. And the first Sunday of Advent uh, focuses its attention on hope. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, on his very last Advent, before he was executed in April of 1945 by the Third Reich, he wrote to a friend of his named Eberhard Bethke. And in that letter, he was reflecting upon what Advent is and what it means to even acknowledge it. And it was his contention that if you're really to kind of grapple with what Advent is for, the way in which it's supposed to focus our attention on hope, then one must be troubled in heart. One must acknowledge how they are poor and imperfect souls. One must long for something far greater at what is still not yet. But you can't really hope, you can't really cultivate what it means to hope until you're acknowledging all of that, that you are troubled in soul, that you are imperfect and poor, and that you long for something greater. That's what it means to observe Advent. And if there was anybody who knew what it meant to long for something greater, it was a man who was in prison who was awaiting his execution six months later. That's what we're going to do. We're going to press in to what is true of us. Because if that's what it takes to observe Advent, I think we all qualify in some form or fashion. Now, how will we do that? We're going to listen to a very ancient story, the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. And you might think to yourself, Ruth? Why not, you know, Matthew 2, two or Luke 1 like why not something a little bit more explicitly related to Jesus let me tell you why if you study the four chapters of Ruth that if you if you listen to it on an app it'll take you 17 minutes to listen to it if you listen to that story you're going to be caught up and connected to the storyline of Jesus cuz this story is going to end in a birth and not just any birth a birth that has everything to do with the lineage of David and if you were listening to the reading at the advent at the very beginning, and then you know that Jesus is of the lineage of David. So Ruth is a relative. To listen to Ruth is to connect yourself to the storyline of Jesus. But far more importantly, this story is out to connect you to the beauty and blessing of Jesus. We are going to take this story on its fullest terms. It is a story full of people troubled in soul. It is a story of people who acknowledge how poor and imperfect they are. It is a story of people who are longing for something that is not before them, that they wonder if it even exists. This story connects us to the beauty and blessing of Jesus because Jesus is all about those needs we're going to listen to this story because it's fitting during Advent because it's going to tell us a lot about ourselves, but it's also going to tell us a lot about our Lord, the one who is our Father, the one who is the Father who sent the Son. And in this chapter, chapter 1, the first 18 verses that Rebecca Cochran's is about to read for us, we're going to learn three things about our Father, his world, his way, and why he is a wonder to us his world, his way, and why he is a wonder. I wonder if you might give your attention to Rebecca by standing as she reads chapter 1, verses 1 through 18.
1: In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. The word of the Lord.
0: You may be seated. Thanks also be to Rebecca, who nailed every pronunciation of those obscure names. That's no small thing. She might be an editor. This story begins in a moment out of joint. When it refers in the very first verse of it taking place during the time of the judges, if you had your Bible and you turned one page back, you would see the end of the book of judges. It's in that moment and in that season of Israel's life, before it had a king, the 12 tribes would appoint these folks who would give guidance and protection and adjudicate things. That's why they were called judges and In that season, it was a little bit of chaos such that twice in the book of Judges, including its last verse, it says everything did what was right in his own eyes. Some things never change. Truth, what is truth? Who are you to tell me what to do? Everything does what is right in their own eyes. It's that moment, it's Our moment in that world is out of joint. And in that out of joint condition, this story begins in a number of ironies. Here's this family. Father's name is Elimelech, whose name is loosely translated God is King. And he's married to a woman named Naomi, whose name is loosely translated as pleasant and sweet. And they have these two boys, Malon and Kilion, who... Uh, if you press it, they're, they're loosely translated as uh, sickly and destruction. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. How am I ever going to rise above my name? Um, that's their story, right? <clears throat> and this family, they're up against it. And the first irony is they live in the city of Bethlehem. You've heard of that one. And that town is directly translated as city of bread. And that city of bread in the land of milk and honey is under a famine. Irony number one. The land of plenty is now dust. Old Mother Hubbard went to her cupboard and found Jack. There's no ingles, and if you don't adapt, you die. So, what do they do? They leave, they gotta find bread. They've got to find grain on which to make the bread. What do they do? So here's irony number two. It's where they go. They go to the region of Moab, just across the Jordan to the southeast. And if you're an Israelite listening to this story for the very first time, you're saying, I'm sorry, that must be wrong. Autocorrect, right? Where did they go? Moab? Moab? Why is that a big deal? Um, it was Luke. Uh, not the gospel writer, but Luke Skywalker, who, um, uh, who, who in explaining to 3PO where he was there in Star Wars, he said, if there's a bright center to the universe, you're on the planet that it's furthest from. Uh, Moab in the Israelite mind is as far from the bright center of God's universe as could be imagined. And, and we all wonder, well, why? What's so wrong about Moab? Well, um, for one, Moab uh, gets its name from the son who was the product of a scandalous relationship of Lot back in Genesis. And because it's a family show, I'll let you parents choose whether to look that one up for your kids later. That's who Moab comes from. But in the wake of that reputation, Moab ends up being rather, well, let's just say estranged from the people of Israel. Doesn't really care for Israel. Such that at one point, the king of Moab, whose name was uh, uh, Balak, he, he contracts with a prophet named Balaam. You know this story from Numbers 22. And he says, hey, I'll pay you. Go place a curse on Israel. See? Real friendly, right? And then later, uh, in during the time of the judges, or yeah, during the time of the judges, you've got the king of Moab, whose name is Eglon, who's oppressing Israel for 18 years, makes Israel a vassal state, and one of the judges from Israel named Ehud. The only way he can end up ending Moab's oppression of Israel is to take a very large sword and run it through Eglon's rather large belly till it comes out on the other side, and seen for Eglon. Right there, it is. That's the story. They share a border, but they don't share no love. That's Moab to Israel. And so of all the places this family might go for rescue, they go there? Yes, they go there. Irony number two. They get there. They settle. Obviously, they find bread. Things are going well. And then daddy dies. Doesn't say why. Doesn't say how. Just Elimelech is dead there in Moab. And that's a big deal if you're Naomi. Because, <clears throat> you know, if you're Naomi, you don't, you, don't, you don't go to night school. You don't pick up extra shifts at the Waffle House. You don't get on SSI to provide for yourself. There's nothing in that system, in that structure, in that day, in that way. Look, you depended mightily upon the landowner, the husband, in order to provide. You are exposed in that moment. So it's a big deal. And in the moment, you read that story, and, and the Israelites, you first hear that, they go, Oh Oh, it's so bad for her, but thank God she has two sons. Yeah, thank God. Malon and Kilion, right? They'll take care of her. It's good. It could be, could be better, but it's good. And then Malon and Kilion, you know, they get older. They're in the land for 10 years, and they find girls. And you can imagine the conversation. They come home and, and, and say, Mom, Mom, we, we, we found someone. And, uh, you know, Naomi says, Are they Jewish? And they say, ah, not exactly. They're from Moab. Where, honey? They're from Moab. At which point, Naomi spits out her goat milk. What? Remember all that stuff we just said about Moab, right? You're going to marry Moabite women like the law itself prohibited marrying with those from others because whenever there's a history of marrying with those of other ethnicities with different allegiances to different gods, guess where it goes? South. They did it anyway. Well, it happened. So, you know, guess who's coming to dinner? The prequel. But at least there's a possibility. Ten years go by and there is no heir, there is no promise of a future and that really mattered a lot in a lot of ways like it does today still but even after 10 years tragedy befalls them again because Mal and Killian die and just when you think when you're Naomi you can think you can sort of pack away the mourning clothes back you pull out the black and you dress in it and maybe Naomi thinks she'll never take it off again And it says there in verse 5, the woman was left without. What I think this first part of the story is teaching us, maybe implicitly, is this This is your father's world. This is your father's world. It can be brutal. And it is brutal, and they knew it, and you know it. If you come tonight, you're going to hear testimonies from people that are going to talk about how this world can be brutal. I'm driving home last week, and I come upon that intersection at Brevard and Ledbetter Street, and what do you see? Rows of wreaths. This world can be brutal. This is your father's world. Anybody that tells you differently is not listening. And we are just like Naomi when it comes to realizing that this is the world we're in. She says there in verse 11, bitterly am I. The Lord has gone out against me. She's connecting the dots of her own experience like we all are prone to do. She starts filling in gaps of her understanding like we're all prone to do. She's looking for explanations. She's trying to find cause and effect. And she goes, clearly, I must have done something wrong. Clearly, he must be out to get me. Clearly, he must be out to empty me. Because why else would any of this happen? We all do that. Stuff happens. We look for an explanation. We try to account for stuff because we think if we just know It'll fix it, and it won't. This world can be brutal. But here's the thing, folks. This world is your father's world, and not only is it brutal, it also can be beautiful. See, we have the luxury of being able to read all of the book of Ruth. In that moment, all Naomi's got is chapter one. And in that moment, all she can think is, the Lord must be against me. But as we read, we're going to discover that there's a lot more to this story than what her preliminary conclusions offer, which I think is rather kind of a testimony or a reminder to all of us that when we are in a moment like Naomi is, we have to remind ourselves, this is not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. Sometimes you and I have to lose the plot in order to find it. And if you would find God's story, you have to lose yours. And you can tease out that metaphor in a million ways. But this is your father's world that can be brutal. It can also be beautiful by the way stuff unfolds. How can it be both brutal and beautiful? I want to show you a scene from a film that came out about five years ago called Calvary. Small film, didn't get wide release. It's about a, a Catholic priest in Ireland It's played by Brendan Gleeson. It's actually core curriculum if you're going to ever be a pastor and study at Trinity School of Divinity up in the Northeast. It's a wonderful, very real picture of what it means to be in the pastorate. And in this scene, Brendan Gleeson's priesthood, he's just met a couple from France who's come to visit from Ireland. And while they're in Ireland, there's a tragic accident and Her husband is now on life support and will have to be taken off life support. And so she, as a Roman Catholic, calls the priest in to administer the last rites. And here in this scene, she is processing with him the grief that she is feeling. And I I just kind of, I got to warn you a little bit, because where she comes from may come a little, sound off a little preachy. Because if you've ever been in the victim of a tragedy, you, you may hear her words a little bit cutting, but just... Just sit with it for a second, okay? Because here's a picture of where the brutality of your father's world and its beauty come together in two minutes and 48 seconds.
1: Have you performed the last rites many times? Yes. Usually with older people, of course. have time to prepare for it. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows what's coming. it is easier it's never easy more understandable let's say less unfair situations like this one people are shocked the randomness of it they curse God curse their fellow man they lose their faith in some cases They lose their faith. It must not have been much of a faith to begin with, if it is so easy for them to lose it. Yes, but. What is faith? For most people, it's it's the fear of death, nothing more than that. If that's all it is, it's very easy to lose. He was a good man. Your husband? Yes. He was a good man. We had a very good life together. We loved each other very much. And now, he has gone. And that is not unfair. That is just what happened. don't live good lives they don't feel love that is what is unfair I feel sorry for them may you say a prayer with me Teresa
0: Which one is the priest who gets it i i I acknowledge that where she comes from and and looks with a certain suspicion about how how faith can be lost from her perspective so easily and and surely we might argue with her a little bit but but in that moment you you sense that she really is grappling with both the brutality and the beauty of all things. That even in the midst of her loss, even in the midst of her sorrow, there is a great capacity for gratitude and faith. And the question is then, if this is our Father's world in which those things coexist and you can't get around them, you you can't close yourself off to either of them if you're going to be honest with what this world is, your Father's world, how? How do we let them coexist? I think the story helps us another way because it says not only what our father's world is, but what our father's way is. And that way comes through in what happens next to Naomi and to Ruth and to Orpah because the light breaks through the clouds and word on the street is, it sounds like things are getting better back in Israel and Bethlehem. The, The rains have come, the ground is flourishing again and there's grain, there's life, there's hope. And Naomi's like, I'm not staying. I gotta go back. That's where I'm from. And so they gather their stuff and they pick up their things and they start heading back to Israel and then two steps forward and Naomi's like wait 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 girls my daughters-in-law the wives of my dead sons I love you don't come with me you're better off staying here in Moab this is home this is familiar. This is where you're oriented. This is the chance that you have to be able to find strength and to find a husband and stuff like that. And you know what? I got a full stop, right? This, this thing that you're hearing about, this, this dependence on, on wives finding husbands. And I know we're in a hashtag me too, hashtag uh, you know, lean in world. And you may hear some of that and go, uh oh, I'm chafed. Why is it so much about wives depending on husbands? And it's kind of like, okay, fine. Don't, don't get hung up on the antiquity of the story and, and miss the beauty of what you're hearing. Because here in this moment, everything has fallen apart and Naomi's trying to do the right thing and she's looking at these girls and she's like, you've got to stay. And so she says to them, she actually prays for them, which is kind of ironic, right? She thinks God is working against her, but, but not so much that she doesn't think he'll hear her prayers. And she says, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant you rest. Rest. In the house of your husband. She's praying goodness and mercy upon them. She wants those things for these young girls because she thinks, you know, there's no sense in them going back to Israel with her. Just just stay here and may the Lord bless you as he has blessed me. And you gotta you gotta sit with that prayer for a minute, because that prayer is not just sort of the thing you put on embroidery and forget about it. Those are some big words in there. When she says, may the Lord deal kindly with you. Kindly, that's a big Bible word. May the Lord grant you rest. That's a big Bible word. And, and, and you can't simply take them in the normal associations that you have with them. The word for rest there, it's more than what you get from a nap. It's more than what you get from a vacation. It's more than what you get from a sabbatical. It's this relief. It's this kind of inner poise that you walk around with. It is as it was for Israel when they were in the land and all of their warriors or all of their armies that were opposing them was finally at an end and it says, they were on every side at rest. They weren't detached from their world. They just weren't burdened and oppressed by it anymore. It's a deeper kind of rest than just being physically refreshed. It's this this relief from anxiety and from burden and from regret and all things that you can't control. And who of us wouldn't want that? That's what it means about the rest of God. To be freed from all those things that you regret, all those things that you have sinned, all those things that you can't control, that's a deeper rest. And for God to give that kind of rest, you know, that's kindness. Kindness we kind of think of as, oh, isn't that sweet? She brought us a plate of cookies. Wasn't that kind? This kindness, that shows up in a lot of places in the Old Testament. And it's the word chesed. And what it means is steadfast love. An irrevocable irrevocable kind of demonstration of faithfulness and loyalty. That's chesed. That's kindness. And that, my friends, is your father's way. And that is what Naomi is praying for these girls, that God would just do his thing, that he would do his way, that he would show them rest as an act of his kindness. And at first, these girls, they hear that and they go, thank you, but there is no way we're letting you go back to Israel alone. We're not going to do it. We love you. You are our kin now. And they weep, which only makes Naomi more impassioned about her plea. She says, "Ladies, girls, look, you don't, you don't know what you're saying. You don't know what it will cost you to be kind to me in the ways that you've already been kind. You need to do your own little analysis here. The chances of you finding a husband in Israel are slim to none, and it's even worse if you're thinking that I'm ever going to conceive again, and you're going to be able to wait for the men to come out of my womb. You don't understand what it will cost you to be kind to me. And you know what? What does that tell us that kindness will always come at a cost? There is no friendship that you've nurtured, no student that you've mentored, no child that you've parented that didn't come at great cost and sacrifice to you. It's impossible otherwise. It's what kindness is. Kindness will always require much of you. And that's what Naomi's trying to get them to understand. It will cost you big time. And so both Orpah and Ruth are trying to do this this little, this calculation they're having to weigh out two things, like, like grain on a scale. And and trying to figure out which is which is heavier? Which which do I have to give the nod to? Do I do I consider more do I consider it heavier to my desire for rest and, and a place for possibility and hope and a home and, and all of the things that might give me relief or or do I wanna do I wanna pay into that account that allows me to be kind to Naomi? And for Orpah, she does that calculation. And, and, and she comes up with this, that her desire for rest is greater than what she can afford to be kind to Naomi. It, it weighs out more on her desire for rest. But for Ruth, it's not like she doesn't have a desire for rest. Why'd she get married? Why'd she stick around? But her desire for rest did not exceed her desire to be kind unto Ruth. And so it says there in verse 11, Orpah kissed her goodbye, but Ruth, Ruth clung to her. See, the irony of it all is this. Naomi prays for Orpah and for Ruth, what Ruth then seeks to become for Naomi. It's as if Ruth sort of becomes the answer to Naomi's prayer, but not the way in which Naomi thought. Ruth is seeking to be a rest and an act of kindness for Naomi which just confirms to us that is God's way. But here's the thing about Ruth and why it matters that it's Ruth the one that's doing it. She's the woman from Moab. Pagan, estranged, Israel-hating Moab such that any Israelite would say whatever good came out of Moab, Ruth did. Ruth came out of Moab. And she's the one that actually is the answer to Naomi's prayer. God's way, your father's way, is to deal kind, is to, to bring you rest as an act of his kindness. But you know what Ruth throws into the mix that adds a variable to this thing? God brings you rest through very unexpected forms of kindness. And that's what Ruth is. No one saw her coming. That's out of left field as any pitch has been thrown the one you would never expect, the one who occupied the form you would never have thought to be the remedy, the refuge for Naomi. She's the one. And that just confirms to us that God operates by bringing his kindness in very unexpected ways. But Ruth is no replacement for everything that Naomi has lost. Ruth won't bring Elimelech back. Ruth won't bring Malon and Kilion back. So Naomi leaves for Israel with Ruth, but essentially with a lot less than what she came to Moab with. So the question is this. If that's God's way to be kind, and yet that way is in a brutal world that will leave you without in a heartbeat, how in the world can he really be kind? How can he really bring us rest? Well, that gets us to the last thing I think this text teaches us. Not only does it show us this is your father's world and this is your father's way, It is also telling us, this is your father's wonder to us. Why he is a wonder. Why he astonishes. The narrator of this passage was very careful to choose a word that captures the kind of devotion that Ruth was showing to Naomi. It was not simply that Ruth was going to accompany Naomi back to Israel, kind of like a you know, a backpacking guide through Pisgah that, or, a, or a, a Sherpa that takes you to the top of Everest that says, yeah, well done, good, well done, thank you, had a good time, pay up, I'm out. It, it doesn't say that Ruth accompanied her. It says Ruth clung to her. That Hebrew word for cling is the same word that shows up in Genesis 2.24 when it says, for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and cling to To his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That word for cling means a lot more than I'll hang out with you. It means that I will be bound to you. It means that I will be in a covenantal kind of connection to you that may God kill me if I betray this vow. That's how in Ruth is in for Naomi. And you hear it put so well. And so definitively and unambiguously when she says there at the end of the passage, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you for where you will go, I will go and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. She's in like no one else can almost. What she's saying to Naomi is, you know what? It really would be easier for me to stay with everything that is familiar and I love what I had here in Moab and I'm sorrowful for what you have lost, but I'm going to leave that behind and I'm going to set my face toward where you're going and I'm going to enter into all the disorientation of being in relationship with you. You're already on your way to bitterness. That's going to be fun. I'm going to enter into wherever you're headed, I'll head. And that word for lodging is not like we're going to be at the Motel 6. It might be we're in a tent or under a bush. I'm going to wander where you wander is what it means. I'm going to actually end up being with your people, the one who are inevitably going to look at me with suspicion. From the very first moment I step foot on your band. But most importantly, I'm going to worship your God. I'm going to take him as the anchor of my soul, as the North Star for my guidance. That's her intention. And you know what that shows? Something has come over Ruth. She's not merely impressed with Naomi. She has been persuaded of something much deeper. Obviously, because she's leaving all of the familiar stuff behind and entering into all the unfamiliarity and potential persecution because something's happened. And what's happened is that she's been persuaded by the wonder of God. You don't say what she says. You don't embrace beyond what she embraces and just embracing Naomi unless you become convinced of the worth of this God. That apparently she doesn't think this God is not worth worshiping because even though Naomi says I'm bitterly or that he's against me, Ruth apparently doesn't think so because your God is now my God. She's showing us what it means to be converted To the beauty of God. Such that we're ready to turn our back on a lot that we once thought was our only home and anchor and instead anchor ourselves in something much different and unfamiliar. That's conversion. She's showing us how she finds God wonderful, but at the same time she's showing us why God is a wonder to us. Ruth's not a replacement for anything that Naomi is without. But what Naomi is hearing from Ruth is one thing from Ruth. I will be with you. And that will count for something. Bob Goff, one of the guys we heard at the Q Commons event last month, he said, you could distill the teaching of the Bible down into one word and that one word would be with. But God is above all things, with. What Ruth will be to Naomi is what God is a wonder to us for. And that even though you have lost so much, He will be with. He will be with you in your without. He will be with me in my without. And that is His wonder. Because somehow if we just know that he is with us through any number of means that we might never have imagined possible or it was coming our way, somehow that matters and somehow it takes us and holds us and holds us dear. Friends, if it wasn't clear to you already, this is why we're listening to Ruth in Advent. Because in that Impressive way that Ruth is promising to be with Naomi, with her, in her, without. There is one who came to us in the flesh, who knew that his father's world was now, at this time, both brutal and beautiful, and who chose to respond to the reality that he found by giving himself and giving us and making us a promise that he would be with us. That he would demonstrate unto us kindness like no one ever has and promised us a rest like no one ever could. A rest from all of your regret from all your sin. A rest from all of your fear about what you might lose in this world. A rest from all of your fear about what you might lose in your death. Do you want that rest? Then you find it in the one who did exceedingly better even than Ruth ever could for Naomi. Because it was Jesus' signature promise that when he came here in the flesh and would submit his flesh to murder and death on a cross, and that flesh rejuvenated to a, a glorious life after resurrection, and a flesh that would then send his spirit that he might be with us, his most signature promise is that he would be with us. A promise that began when he came in the flesh in a cradle. God with us, Emmanuel. He is here, Jacob, right? He is coming, right, Mark? That's his promise. What do we do with that? I I realize that on any given Sunday, there may be people here that maybe are curious about the Lord, but probably nothing more than that. And yet, maybe when you hear, maybe something is persuasive to you. And if you are thusly persuaded in some way that you can't quite deny, then I I would like to encourage you and invite you just like Ruth to voice that being persuaded. To me, to somebody. There are worse days than the first day of the year in which you might begin your pilgrimage because here's the deal. What we find in Ruth's story is this. God came hunting and found her and brought her to himself he brings this hapless family that was desperate, that was making either some sort of defiant or just desperate choice by going to Moab, and he connects them with this family and um, sons that might not have other ever married. woman. Women like uh, Ruth does so and then weaves two stories together in grief and shows us his way in a very unexpected way and in a very subtle way that's mediated a lot through just a bunch of human choices that maybe make no sense at the time. That's his way. And surely he did that in Jesus. If you're persuaded, tell someone. If you're already persuaded, and you find someone in your life that's like a Naomi, Kelly Capik is a professor at Covenant College whose wife has been very ill for about 12 years, and he's learned along that journey of being with his wife that while it is our instinct for someone who is suffering to quote them the verse his suggestion to us sometimes is that we would just be the verse. Ruth um, didn't know any verses. She didn't know this Bible. But to Naomi, she was beginning to be that verse. And that's how we might respond also. This is his world. This is his way. This is his wonder. And this is why we worship at the feet of Jesus. Let's pray. Of the Father's love begotten, there the world began to be. He is Alpha and Omega. He the source, the ending He. Of the things that are, that have been, and that future you shall see, evermore and evermore.